Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. of the Out of the Woods, a threat hunting podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Lee Arkadal. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us. And this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of October 2nd, 2023. So Lee, I was going to start with... um, an article I thought was really interesting. And there's really a point to why I bring this one up, but it's uh, from cypherma.com and the, it's called The Thin Line, Educational Tools Versus Malicious Threats, a focus on the Merck Stealer. Um, so a lot of stealers come up in general in a lot of reports lately. And this one was you know interesting to me because you know, they're talking about, you know, what is where do we draw that line essentially when people make these educational malicious or offensive tools that uh, adversaries will just pick up realm with and utilize against people um so you know it two things come to mind one we can't just ignore open source tooling as defenders and just say that's not like i worry about other things i don't play in the offensive side i think it's very important to you know grab these types of things and utilize them um, but in the article, when I was trying to look for some of this, the technical write-up stuff, you know, I made the first error I always talk about um, people should avoid. And I walked through the article and I was looking at the text, looking for anything that stood out as, well, what would I, you know, identify, touch on, or, you know, call out for potential hunting artifacts or detection criteria. And honestly, nothing really stood out. But they have an exorbitant amount of screenshots so then I kind of like noticed one screenshot where I noticed some details on the screenshot. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So I actually was like, oh, yeah, I really should pay attention to screenshots when it comes to reporting, especially if there's technical stuff. Because even though it looks like code, like source code, um, there's a lot in there that actually tells me things I should really be looking for. Um, so to dive into some of those as I was looking through these screenshots, um, one was there is a reference to a use of a UAC bypass. Uh, if they didn't have administrative rights when it was running, uh, and then favorite, if it didn't, by the way. right. And the one thing I was kind of disappointed is they didn't like show the code for what UAC bypass was used. Um, but based on the assumption, what they're trying to do is use PowerShell to add an exclusion to the MP preferences for Windows Defender for the malware itself. Uh, so the bypass was used to elevate to do that. So it was going to do that anyways after the elevation, or if you already had it, it just does it. Um, so a good thing to kind of look for in general is one of the one of the first things it tries to do is basically make it uh, undetectable or um, prevent any of the, the standard defenses. Because, you know, you think stealers, the target isn't always or organizations that have their specific paid-for tool. You know, stealers go after people in general and mass as well. Uh, so a lot of them run Defender if they just run Windows, right? So that one kind of makes sense. And then the other thing I saw that stood out was I was like, well, I started seeing some um, references to paths, uh, where and I and I wasn't sure if they were important or not. 
But one of the ones that kept coming up was the Win DLL um, path. And as I kind of found, I finally found a screenshot where that was mostly being built. And it basically is dropping in the user's profile in their app data local directory is where you see this Win DLL, um, which uh, is a very um, telling trait, right? So any data they grab, um, and they grab data from all your messenger apps, from all your like documents, downloads, your desktop, they grab files there, they grab things um, from your photos, um, your gaming accounts, you know, anything that, you know, that they can grab and get their hands on, they steal, and they kind of put in their own directory, uh, labeled files or games or messengers or photos in that win DLL path. So, you know, that was just an interesting um, location. And depending on what kind of tools or detection capabilities, or if you're using Sysmon, you can kind of set this up to look for any file creations in that path. Uh, that would be an easy, easy win there. Um, and then uh, one of the other things I noticed uh, was the use of um, WMI running from PowerShell. So basically calling it like a WMI, WMI object to run code. Uh, and it was basically to enumerate some things. And an interesting antidote, uh, like I said, I've been seeing a lot of stealers uh, in, in just today's reporting in general from some articles. And that was a common trend across a lot of them. It was actually using WMI, WMI to profile the system um, and potentially self-terminate uh, based on its findings because it's trying to avoid the detections and sandboxes and things like that. And one of the two most common traits there, uh, looking at stealers across the board, was the WMI command for the select star from Win32 underscore, underscore computer system, which basically, um, if the manufacturer is Microsoft and if the model is virtual, they know it's a virtual box. And the other thing that's commonly profiled um, when things hit is select star from Win32 underscore video controller. Um, for the same reasons where basically that's supposed to pull back graphic card information. And if you're running on a virtual machine, you're not going to be running graphics the same way you would be calling out to a specific card or be using the drivers and things associated with the hypervisor um, to kind of link those things. So um, two really interesting things. But, you know, what's interesting is obviously they're talking about an open source tool um, versus... Uh, you know, some of the other stealers, which are more driven um, and home built, they all seem to kind of stem from some similar things, right? So, you know, it's always good to utilize what you know, what's out there to help combat the things you're unsure about because you might gain some wins there. So, and the last little thing I did see where the the, the remove capability where it performs a, a PowerShell call to basically sleep for a period of time and then like remove... Uh, you know, whatever it was planning on removing after that. So, um, so yeah, there was some interesting anecdotes, but uh, that's kind of what the article is about. Biggest takeaway: pay attention to images. I was like, I almost missed the great opportunity when I was just trying to read this quickly. So, what do you think? No, I completely agree. Screenshots are—they um, can save you a lot of time or clear up a lot of confusion that you might have. I will say these help me, especially whenever the researchers put notes and highlight stuff yeah it helps me um really get past that a uh because i'm i will say i love dynamic analysis that's pretty much where i live mm -hmm. 
um, on, on the blue team side. When it comes to static analysis, I'm pretty much useless. Um, so seeing these screenshots, seeing the code sometimes overwhelms me because I'm like, I don't know what this is. But whenever the researchers, like, they've generated enough and it looks like they took screenshots and I'm not sure if they added the comment in um, or that was from the the source or the source code itself. Uh, but those notes really helped me understand uh, what's going on. Being a uh, semi-literal person living in a digital world, that can be uh, a trouble for me sometimes. But once I can see it and understand what's going on, those things really, really help out. Um, but yes, this is a great article. Uh, I love the fact that it mentions that uh, early on that this stealer used resources uh, you know, from GitHub and that they were labeled educational, which in my mind always, um, I don't know. I, I think I'm not knocking the creator of this, um, but there's this like fine line of creating something to show off your skills and then releasing it and then creating something that is that can be so used so maliciously. I mean, the big things that come to my mind right away are like Cobalt Strike, Metasploit, mm -hmm. um, Brute Retail, right? Like these are all tools that we're creating legitimately for adversary emulation. But look what happens. Look how many times we see. Um, you know, we're seeing um, those in Intel reports time and time again. I mean, Cobalt Strike beacons are, like, used so often because they work, right? And it's, They're just included in the attack because of how convenient they always are now, right? It's almost like you don't even care about them anymore, but they always show up. Right, and, and, and it all stems from a tool that's just was supposed to – great idea, right? We got to bridge that gap between red and blue teams so we can see what we're looking at. You know, what are the adversaries using? And then we create tools that the adversaries use. It's kind of like a, what a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy. Either way, um, there's that's a bigger theological discussion that we probably don't have time for. Um, I saw that it mentioned a bunch of different uh, modules as they were breaking it down, which I thought was neat. These just showed that it was uh, not just like uh, a single. Or a one-trick pony, right? It's not just looking for, um, you know, Bitcoin. It's not looking for a certain banking application. It's gathering information off of browsers, messengers, VPN systems, like, you name it. This is like the all-in-one, giving me all the information that you can. Mm -hmm. um, it can also grab screenshots. It can grab input, you know, uh, clipboard. It can, you know, all this input collection going on. Um, which, once again, is fascinating. Those tools, um, how they do it, you know, whatever the case may be, it's, it's tough. It's tough to find out, especially whenever a lot of this is done through, like, API calls, right? Um, and the question is, at that point, if, um, and since we haven't figured out a good way to, um, or maybe it is out there and I'm just ignorant to it, we haven't been able to find a way to create logging for APIs that is um, digestible and not just strictly a fire hose. Um, because whenever I first thought about this, I was like, well, why don't we just track the APIs? I think a couple 
people at Cyborg laughed at me because they were like, do you realize how many IP or APIs happen uh, in a second, in a minute? And I was like, oh, no, I didn't really do that. But, um, you know, how do you how do you find this stuff, right? Like, if you think that they're capturing screenshots, if you think they're capturing your uh, clipboard or they're gathering information, where do you go, right? Where do you even start? Um, so, I know I've tried to tackle this problem uh, previously, but what I found was, and of course, I went to the MITRE TAC framework, of course. I always got its weekly plug. But reading from the detection um, portions, um, for screen capture, it says monitoring for screen capture behavior will depend on the method used to obtain data. So however you're collecting that. And write output files. Now you could uh, could include collecting information from unusual processes. So if it's like process injection creating files or process or a process that's injected doing the gathering activity, that would look weird versus capturing that API call. Um, monitoring for images files written into a disk within a short amount of time, you know, you name it. So there's a lot. So while you can't, you may not be able to capture the action of the screen capture or the clipboard data being collected by the adversary, what you can look for is abnormal processes creating files in the same directory. Look for PNGs, look for text files, like you name it. Because uh, I think even one of the screenshots showed um, the output files that were all listed as, um, or once used the um, the blacklisted, it was blacklisted baseboard text, blacklisted BIOS text, blacklisted CPU text. Like, so it named itself, um, and don't get me wrong, I'm sure that's not obfuscated because it's the whole educational portion of it, but if the adversary takes the code and changes that to output whatever they want, you know, then it might be get a little harder. But you see all these text files being created um, in the same location. So looking for that type of thing um, is a way that you can start to understand or find what they are creating and capturing. Uh, and then, of course, if through a log perspective, if you see these files being created, that's one thing. But then, you know, once you get to the digital forensics uh, instant response artifacts, then you can actually get your hands on the files uh, itself and see what, you know, what data is in there. Um, and to go back to uh, the UACs, which is the user account control bypass technique, um, this has been a topic that I think we've discussed before, um, but if just to remind everyone if we haven't, is that the user account control bypass technique is widely used, especially by ransomware, to get what they want. Um, they're looking for privilege escalation. They are trying to uh, run things as administrator or possibly a system if they can get it. And this is just a technique. Now, there are um, executables out there that um, we've stumbled across. Uh, specifically, I know one is off GitHub called UACMe. And we actually uh, wanted to take a look at it in the lab. Like, what does this do? Let's take a look at the code. Tell me what you think, you know. And of course, our our uh, programmers are tearing through it and finding artifacts, um, finding specific things that can be used. And as we're working through it and executing the binary, we get a lot of information. And it's like, wow, this is really a problem. Because I think at last time I checked, there was like 60 ways 
to gain um, privilege escalation through USC bypass. Yeah, I feel like it's still growing too. Oh yeah, well they, they patch it and then or they they make patches, make changes because some were open, some were closed, or sorry, some were vulnerable and some were patched, so they you know they weren't vulnerable anymore. Uh, but that can you know like you said it can it continues to grow. Um, and so I was like, well, why isn't Microsoft doing anything? Because you know, um, if I don't know if, and I know Microsoft is huge. They got a billion other things to worry about. You you name it, you know, whatever excuse. But then I looked at the documentation, and there's something that says that uh, UAC, or the user account control, is not a security boundary, um, which I kind of understood it to be a security, not control, but almost like administrative security technique or whatever. Um, because, you know, normally if it's enabled, you click on something that says, do you want to run as register or as an administrator? You say yes. And it'll say, okay, we're going to do it. Or you don't have the privileges. Then you have mm-hmm. options to always notify. So you always notify. Uh, then you can not, sometimes not. Uh, then you can turn it off completely. Um, which makes things kind of easier. You know, if you can modify the registry key that controls the user account control, um, then you don't even have to worry about it. But in organizations that you don't have the ability to modify the registry key and turn it off, uh, and you don't have administrative privileges uh, yet, UAC bypass is a way to get there. Um, which still, Microsoft kind of saying just turn it on. Uh, as a mitigation is great until the adversary turns it off or someone turns it off or there's just a, you know, a bad push of a, uh, you know, GP or group policy update, whatever the case may be. Um, I'll get off my tangent in a second. Um, <laughs> sorry. The, that was like my uh, bread and butter for about like six months, I think, here. Um, but I will say there was one thing that I was shocked not to see. Um, and of course, uh, this this being a great article, they added the miter attack TTPs at the bottom. Can you guess which one I did not see that we normally see? You didn't see UAC bypass. <laughs> I didn't look. <laughs> oh, oh, persistence isn't there. Oh, uh... I, I was like, wait a second. This perfect, like this, not perfect, but this really well designed tool. I was probably just like, he's in grabbing it out, right? So it doesn't have to rerun. Well, I do, or I was, you know, typing in persist and, you know, control F. Um, And what I found was it said that it uses, um, it persists through user account. Oh, yeah, sorry, UAC to execute higher privileges, um, which enhances its stealth and uh, persistence. But they didn't really, you know, um, answer my question. But then... There was that they um, add anti-analysis. They create hidden directories. So all they do is add that uh, hidden uh, value to it, um, and they create the directory so that normally no one's going to look at, right? If they don't know the directory looks. And that kind of gave me that whole um, obscurity through secure, or uh, security through obscurity feel. Um, yeah. uh, and I guess in this case it would be obscurity persistence through obscurity that doesn't really rhyme um but at the same time i think i was just shocked that it wasn't um following the normal ttps of you know schedule task uh registry keys the startup 
location. Um, you know, you know, yeah, but I want to say that, I mean, I think they dropped themselves in a hidden directory, but I feel like a hidden directory too is also where they hide all the data they collect because they collect a lot of things. Like you went through that list. Oh yeah. So I'm sure like if someone could see accidentally stumble into that, they would know right off hand, like, Oh, something bad just happened. So oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. If you have the right tools, you could see that that tool is executing from the same directory, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, not to have a defined long-term persistence. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um. Yeah. No. Great article. Um. I'm definitely adding them to my bookmarks. because uh, I really appreciate their work. Um. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that to attention. Uh, do you have anything else? No, that sums up for now. I know I'm going to revisit the topic a little bit on a different segue, but. Uh... Uh, yeah, go ahead. All right, so uh, for my first article, it's from Symantec uh, by Broadcom. It's called Budworm APT Group Uses Updated Custom Tool and Attacks on Government and Telecom Org. So, um, big call out here was they noticed that they were using DLL sideloading, which we've discussed many times mm-hmm. um, because it works. And I'm going to, I'm gonna as long as I'm on this podcast, I'm going to bring up things that work constantly because they're working still. Um, yeah, they're like the easiest things that we should be focusing efforts on because everyone's going to be using them until we stop them. Yeah, right. Like uh, almost like the low-hanging fruit of TTPs. Um, yeah, yeah. But, um, but more, uh, more specifically, it was in this application called, uh, and I'm probably going to butcher this, but it's INI Safe Web SSO application. Um, ironically, this DLL sideloading vulnerability has been leveraged back as far back as 2018, and I went back to verify this. They, you know, they added the link in there. Um, it was from the NCC group, and it talks about how they abused the same thing uh, or the same application. Now I was like, that's that's not good, right? Um, you have a, a technique, a TTP that's constantly working. Um, and in, and in the same application, you think at some point, you know, that would get fixed a lot more. I don't know. Um, well, I feel like adversaries are good about identifying executables they can take advantage of. And as long as they just hold on to those, they can move those executables, which are legit, and they're not going to fire for malware, right? And so they just move old software that's vulnerable to systems to be able to perform these attacks. It's one of those things that they can leverage too. That's true. I, I, I guess I never thought about that, that they would drop their own um mm-hmm. vulnerable applications um huh wow sorry that blew my mind uh <laughs> that's and that's such a simple answer right uh well that's why i think dls persists for so long because once it's out there it's like the cat's out of the bag you know like you either gotta know these versions of these executables that are vulnerable to this or look for the behavior, right? Like we've talked about, if you see a DLL being dropped in the same directory as an executable, you know, the same, re- relatively the same time, um, it's not like a standard systems like program file or you know, system thirty two. It's it's highly questionable. That, that's crazy. And maybe maybe we should start getting a list of these executables and just be like, hey, here's an easy detection. <laughs> All these versions are vulnerable. Right. I would say now, it's worth it if people weren't continuously creating for the problem because they don't have good coding practices, <laughs> you know. <laughs> In a perfect world, mm-hmm. but no, I, I that that completely makes sense. So I guess now if you start seeing an executable in DLL, uh, that's 
older version. <laughs> um, but so that was happening. DL the DLL sideloading will lead to a sysupdate backdoor, uh, which is their custom tool. Uh, so, um, sorry, Budworm's custom tool that they built, um, and it what it does is pretty much uh, has the capabilities of most backdoors. You can interact with services, so list, start, stop, and delete them. Taking screenshots again, so we got that you know screen collection. Uh, browse and terminate processes, so now you can actually control what's running. Um, Drive information retrieval, file management, so you could delete stuff, upload it, download it, you know, whatever, and then command execution. Um, so a lot of TTPs that, once again, are associated with all these malwares, um, and especially TTPs that are constantly showing up. Why do the adversaries need to know what services are running on your machine? Um, well, I, I forgot to mention it, but in the, the Merck Stealer, it had... Um, once it got UAC bypassed, it would add a exclusion or itself to the Windows Defender exclusion. So if you look at, um, if you look at all the services that are running, if you see Windows Defender is the, um, you know, solution of choice, then you could say, well, I know how to work around that. If it's Kaspersky, if it's you know Treadmicro, you name it, you know, whatever the case may be, they need to kill something, right? Or they need to modify something. Um, so that's what they're looking for. And that's why they're trying to grab the information and trying to grab screenshots so they know what you're doing. Um, and of course, remote code execution. Now, these adversaries also used um, open source or publicly available tools like ADFind, uh, Curl, Secrets Dump, and Password Dumper. Now, there wasn't a lot of um, technical details here. Mm -hmm. And I actually really enjoyed that because it focused on a single tool that had a bunch of uh, TTPs associated with it. And I know it mentioned four open source or uh, publicly available tools. And the reason I like to bring that to light is if you focus on the TTPs that are displayed by these publicly available tools. So if you're looking at um, AD find looking for discovery, if you can create a threat hunt that's based off of the activity and not the specific tool. So be generally specific, I guess. Um, then you can probably start to be able to find activity associated with their custom tools. So, and what I'm stressing is that if you have an IOC for a sys update, you may be able to find it through looking at a hash. If you don't have a hash, or the uh, sysupdate was updated or the code was modified, that hash might not be good anymore and might not find anything. But if you start looking at discovery things, like, hey, um, how, you know, how, are, how is AD find discovering you know, network activity? Or how, is, how can an adversary see what services are running in my environment? Once you start emulating that, then you are kind of, and when I say generally specific, I mean, you are looking for a specific action or behavior but you could find many many tools out there um like the uh the merc stealer it has a lot of the capabilities mm -hmm. as this success update so if you can get really good at those fundamentals and get really good at finding those discovery activity then you can start possibly finding more things with one hunt 
versus one detection based on one IOC or one, um, I guess, indicator versus okay. a behavior. That's all I got. What, what was yeah. your takeaway from here? I mean, like, I think you make a great statement there. Like, when we hunt, we're not trying, or we try to seldom narrow our, like, vision to a single tool or a single part of an attack we, we really like to find those hunts that can be effective a across an entire technique um so that you know that you're better protected for things to come as well as uh have a higher chance of finding things that may already exist um but you know the big thing is out to me were some of the things you called out um so and that is obviously the dls i loaded which we've already touched on you know what are some of the behaviors and traits there? Um, and then the public tools. And, you know, I'm going to touch on this on my next article too, but, you know, the AD fine, you know, it's public. It's something you can go grab and it's it, it's used by administrators. You know, it'd be interesting if you even know if your administrators use that tool um, because it's an effective tool. That's why it exists. It wasn't there for the adversaries. Curl is a great example of that too. I mean, Curl has been around forever. It was like the, the bearded way of moving things. Um, back and right. you know if you're right like it's it's just like hey i want to get some file like i'm gonna go web page i'm just gonna curl it all right cool but like what's you know you know using it and pulling it down and understanding like how what does it download like from an upload what are the arguments of like if i want to use you know what are the arguments that are available like what can i change what can i modify um and the same thing with secret dumps you know they're all publicly available and so this is where you don't really have to be like a reverse engineer to be like well how am i going to detect these things it's as simple as just get the tools and play with them and see a few things, right? Like what does artifacts get generated or what privileges are needed? So sometimes if you need elevated privileges to run this, then you kind of create a scope on how you should see this and maybe, you know, where you, you know, who could be taken advantage of for this to be seen or what actions need to happen on a machine before these are used, which is like even more information you can kind of hypothesize about. And then also, you know, what out of the protections you have automatically trigger or block on these things. You know, that's always great when you see, oh, some adversary really likes this open source tool. And you're like, well, my detections immediately identify that tool. Well, okay, great. Well, that means that you probably aren't going to necessarily hunt for that tool specifically, unless you think there's a gap in visibility somewhere, uh, which is always good to try to, you know, spot if you can. But that means that the adversary is going to have to use a different tool to perform the same actions. And that's when you start that whole exploratory. Like, I'm going to go find what else can do this. Like, there are, there are PowerShell modules that people have written in GitHub that you can download that are really easy. Like, look for other publicly available things. Because if they're already using a publicly available thing, it means they haven't taken the time to build their own. Or the, they just don't know or just want to spend the time. And so they really just use open tools in general. So that was like my big takeaway from looking at that with some of those anecdotes. Yeah. And, and I think we talked about this last week, but if they're using um, open source stuff or publicly available stuff, uh, I think realized while we were talking <laughs> last week was that they, you know, either they're doing it because it's easy or they're doing it because they don't need to do anything more difficult. Um, and I know that seems like the same thing uh, or the same statement, but what I mean is that 
they might be saving themselves time by using an open or a publicly available tool that they can drop in there and that's used by administrators to blend in. Or they're using a tool because they've they've looked at your environment and realized they don't need to use anything else. It's like that whole idea of you only burn a zero day if you have to. Um, mm-hmm. But still, same concept. Um, but go in. Go and see what these tools look like. Like, just play yeah. around. Like, so it's a, a great segue to my next topic. I um, love this next one, by the way. <laughs> well, we've touched on it before, but it really is legitimately the GitHub um, from Nick uh, Vinesmoke, um, as he calls himself. And it is the Mercs dealer on GitHub. Um so I only bring this up because we've already kind of hit on it a lot, right? Part of being a security professional isn't about managing security devices and security tools. Um, some of this is about learning and validating. And, you know, one of the things, you know, they mentioned it in the last article about this, you know, educational tool, and he calls it out educational and kind of gives guidelines and whatever. But adversaries are clearly using it. And not just like a couple, like a lot, right? And... So, one, I would say when you hear about tools like this, it is so important to go make a clone of that repository. Because I'll tell you what, if enough abuse happens or whatever, those repositories disappear. And then the only artifacts of it end up on, like, the dark web, where people have already pulled it down and they just continue to share and modify it that way. And that's Uh, where you would want it. Right. And so, like, you might as well (laughs) take advantage of it while you have it, right? Um but also, there's a couple of traits with the Merck Steeler that I didn't mention before because they didn't call it out, you know, or didn't show a lot of technical detail around that. So this is where it's really important. Like, we got a really cool article to talk about some technical detail. But there's obviously a lot of capabilities they didn't touch on because they weren't going to spend – no one's going to read that 200-page report, right? Um, especially if they're just trying to look for headlines. And that is the common use, like, the two communication methods you can kind of uh, – compile it for is either using telegram or discord and i'll tell you what if you read a lot of articles out there in general you see where a lot of adversaries will set up c2 frameworks using telegram and discord and if you've never generated it or seen that data yourself it's a great opportunity to, to start using a tool that explains how it works that you can play with and generate some of that extra data that's not even covered in the original article um and get a feel for how do your tools behave to this? What can you see? What stands out? Um, and, you know, so it's, I think, very, very important um, to have dedicated time to play with offensive-type capabilities. Even if it's just like, hey, if I was going to use PowerShell or WMI to profile my environment or my PC, like, what does that look like? Those are things that, I mean, you learn a lot doing it, for one. Um, but two, you also are able to, when you see, like, there's nothing worse than when you see, uh, oh, it's always exciting when you see a report. And it's like, man, I've never seen that before. That's really interesting. And, you know, but it's so much cooler when you've done something yourself and you see a report. I'm like, oh, I know what they're doing here. Yeah, I've done that, you know. And so it's not like a foreign uh scare you get when you're like oh gosh like are we protecting against that what are they going to do is this you know how bad is this you can speak very intelligently like yeah this is what this does this is the type of information they get back this is how they probably likely use it and that kind of thing 
So it's just more of a, a nudge, I guess, why I bring in this article to say, hey, go grab things and do things. And if anything, if you don't feel like you have the capability for this, this is a, a, hopefully a good conversation starter um, for your management to say, hey, maybe we should have a place where we can do this um, because it's it's okay. I know people worry about like blowback or oh, what if we infect your things? If you're controlling it, it's not infecting your things. Um, not saying you shouldn't take the precaution and make your own lab environment. That's probably the best case scenario. But, uh, but yeah, figure that out. So speak for yourself about that 200-page report. <laughs> yeah, I know we would read it, but not everyone would. <laughs> I think we're, we are fortunately blessed with the time to do that, and that I mean that that's our job, right? Um. So, fun stuff about this that I, that stuck out to me. You you present a lot of points, right? Um, why would someone use Telegram or Discord as a C2 server? Is that a question for me? Yeah, like, oh. why would someone so, use something that's so uh, visible? Because, one, it's already a known non-threatening tool. Uh, Telegram has the capability for um, even encrypted communication. So it's like almost a secure layer that you don't have to create yourself. Um, they have really easy API tie-ins to do multiple capabilities. So when you think about C2 frameworks, where you have to like, well, how do I move a file? How do I execute something? How do I you know, get information and move it back and forth. Um, some of that stuff's kind of already built in. Uh, but really, the, the biggest thing is just being able to quickly do something, have the capabilities, and it kind of already blends in with what people would look at as, oh, yeah, that's just an app, you know? Right. Um, and I think the, the uh, out of all those points you made, the only thing you didn't mention, which, uh, I mean, you mentioned every other point, was that... <laughs> um, it's trusted, right? Right. And in organizations, yeah. that, like if that's a legitimate application in your environment, people might look at it and say, yeah, that's what we use, or we use that, um, which could go either way. Um, you either say that's an easy red flag to notice that, hey, um, you know, hey, we don't use that here. What's going on? Or you say, oh, yeah, no, that that is um, – that is – what we or that is what we use is probably normal traffic, which takes time to dig into, right? Um, but it's trusted. Um, some things I mentioned or noticed about this. First of all, I got our team of cyborg to start putting this together because I, I want to play with it in the lab. Um, but um, I love the disclaimer, right? Um, where is it? It says this right. is used for educational purposes only. Um, the creator is not responsible for this. Um, you know, it can cause damages. Uh, you bear the, f the full responsibility of your actions and acknowledge that this was created for educational purposes only. Okay. That, in it, once and I know I mentioned this earlier, but I, that in itself raises a red flag of, you know, you realize you are providing resources to anyone. It could be harmful. Yeah. Right. Um, it's great because it does provide us resources to analyze this stuff. And I think one that I, I find it funny though, or ironic that the next note right below it is a request that says, don't upload builder stealer to virus total. 
The more often you upload it, the more and faster antiviruses begin to recognize its signature. I'm kind of torn between that because I would much rather people go into their environment in a lab and control what their AV catches. So if they do have a tool, or if they do want to use this tool in the lab, right? Yes, it's going to probably take some time. It's probably going to cause some headaches. But if they can say, I'm going to create an exception in my lab environment for this tool, I'm going to do so, right? That way they could test to see if their antivirus actually picks up on it because they're trying, half the, half the game is knowing what it does and what the traffic looks like and what the logs look like. And then the next part is validating that your organization can stop it. Um, so, yeah, you know, I'm a little torn with that statement. I don't want to be the person that does it because I don't want to, you know, one, I don't want to crush this person, have, you know, have them stop producing tools like this. But at the same time, it's kind of like, well, you know, I think you understand, you understand enough the value of having it on virus total that you're asking not to lose. Um, either or. Yeah, it's um, both sides of the argument. Yeah. Um, but no, it, it looks like a, I hope we can get this working. I hope we can have fun with it. Um, oh, I, I, I think it's funny too. Or I, once again, I, I use the funny word funny a lot. It's not funny. It's ironic that <laughs> the donations are all um, like Bitcoin, Ethereum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, oh, you want to remain anonymous? <laughs> um, so either way. There was one thing I forgot to mention that I think is a good point when you have access to source code. And, you know, I mentioned in the images in the previous article where call out certain paths that were being used and things like that is obviously if an adversary takes this, they may, might try to change some things to change those artifacts. And it's good to be aware of artifacts you identify, how often they show up in the source code. Um, because if you're going to change things, it's much easier to change things that are simple, like change certain things in certain places one time it still runs no issues versus the harder it is to rip out some code or rip out some things that are used over and over throughout the code um that makes it much harder for adversaries to change which means based on the laziness nature of a lot of people uh they may not and it's good to be aware of those things and you only really can see like what you can change or not change very easily when you have access to that source code so there's an advantage there too um, when you get your hands on any open source tooling like that is to be able to identify uh, what are those hard or easy places um, because more likely people will augment something just so that yeah, obviously the hash changes or makes it harder for AV to detect up on certain patterns. So I want to make sure to mention that. No, that is a good call. Um, which I hate to be beat a dead horse. But that changes the IOCs if you modify the source code. And then what are you, what are you stuck with looking at? Right. TTPs and behaviors. Yeah. Hopefully those artifacts are identified that are hard to change. <laughs> exactly. You, you'll hear that a lot. I mean, that's what we yeah. All right. So to the next. So another, a, uh, a short article, but very valuable. Um, the Secure List Research Team by Kaspersky. They highlighted a cryptor, a stealer, and a banking trojan all in one. Um, now they didn't dive deep into it. They just discussed um, how these things are changing. 
Now, they do link to reports that you can, or uh, to resources that you can look further into. Um, which, if you're looking for the TTPs of each one, and you're looking for those things, um, it's you know, you can you can get there easily. Um, but they discuss the ASM crypt, Luma, and the Zanubis. So Luma is your uh, stealer, and Zanubis is a banking trojan. I believe it's an Android banking trojan. So things they mention is when it was first appeared, what a uh, couple of its capabilities, um, and then things they've seen progress, like how they see. Uh, how they notice things changing. And one thing that made me very happy to see um, was, especially for the, the Luma Stealer, they list the MD5 hash with the bullets of the modifications that were, they were um, that changed, right? So the updates, and it was great because we always say IOCs are very short-lived. IOCs are a good place to start with incident response or like a quick win of I'm going to run a search for 30 to 90 days or whatever the case may be. In my environment, you know, does this exist here? But at the same time, they are saying here's the capability that was added and here's the new hash. So they provide you with one, two, three, four, five, six hashes of the Luma Stealer alone. Um, from previous versions um, and new capabilities to look for. But, and uh, sorry if I'm beating this dead horse, but what this validates is all the things that we're saying about looking at TTPs, looking at capabilities, and looking at the human behavior and the goals and objectives of the adversary. The stealer gained more capabilities, yes, but the goal always remained the same. I want to take your information. I want to figure out what's going on so I can leverage it further down in the attack chain. So you can create a super fancy detection, uh, or you can buy a super expensive tool to capture this activity. Um, but if you have logs and you have um, proper or substantial auditing in your environment, if you can just make a really good um, like threat hunt based off of a capability, going back to that general but specific mindset, that if you get really good at the fundamentals of threat hunting and focusing on the human aspect, then that could lead to finding more information uh, or better information about the tools that exist in your environment and then you can find them malware, and then you could possibly find things that you didn't expect, right? It's it's like being really good at the basics, understanding what logs you have, understanding what logs you can look at, and how you want to look at them before you try to create some, you know, super um, convoluted query to find specifically the Luma Stealer communicating with its C2 server, right? Uh, and I just use that example. But if you can think about the fact that these IOCs change quickly, but the stealer is still the stealer and is still going to try and um, get your information. Now it's going to look different. It's going to um, possibly... Um, the techniques are good. The techniques or the tools they use may change, but it, 
the behavior will still look the same. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm ranting again. Uh, it's just it's just such a if you can if you can get good at this if you can get experience with it and find that groove where you're like I ran a discovery hunt and I found six interesting artifacts. From that point, then you can start taking a look at those six interesting artifacts and figure out, are they related? Are they not? Are they separate? Or is it a whole one whole thing? Um, but then you can start looking for the powers there. Oh. But that's, that's all I have. I, I just got a lot of validation out of this article. It was really good, though. Yeah, so the... Uh... The first thing I liked that I saw was apparently one of the ways they were infecting files were um, what looked to be a legitimate uh, docx to PDF converter site, um, which always is funny to me because if anyone's savvy enough, uh, you know you can just print the PDF most cases. Um, so you can kind of tell the, the target audience it may be less computer savvy in general. Um, and then that also meaning that the file they get back when they get go to the site is basically the file name .pdf .exe, but Windows has this capability to make it look less technical, where they basically will not show extensions on files by default. So that is a setting you have to enable. Um, and I think in organizations, it's really important to have that enabled. Because some users are at least smart to say, well, that looks weird. It's supposed to be a PDF, but it doesn't say PDF. It has something else in the end, even though it has a PDF symbol or something like that. So that might be enough to get a user kind of tipped in the right direction. But I also saw the same attack uh, from another article I was looking at this morning where they're phishing. Same thing. They would send a PDF.exe, or that was in the zip file that they, they sent. But it just didn't show because that's the settings, right? So that was one artifact that the, the double extension uh, specifically is a good thing to look for. And then also I was looking at our, or at least my, my lab um, PC and they used the program data directory, which is a hidden directory. So, you know, if you're not familiar with it, it's, it's on your C drive, it's just usually hidden. Uh, and it typically doesn't have raw data dropped directly into it. Usually, if you're going to use it as a program or an application, there you'll create your own separate directory in there and then use that. Like, for instance, the only file I saw on there on mine was the ntuser.pol, P-O-L, which basically is a user-specific policy settings for my user, right? So that, that exists there, but that's also a weird file type and extension. But um, in this specific instance, they were dropping zip files directly in that directory. Um, and so that is also a behavior that is not expected um, by most programs and applications because they like to keep their data containerized and away from other programs' data um, just because that's how I think everybody thinks and operates and they like to think as their program being super specific and they want to be able to find other things without any, any confusion. Um, there were possibly overwriting of data, which is also a problem if you don't use your own directories. So that was something I thought was an interesting artifact that uh, I've never thought to look at, um, but they kind of brought it to my attention and made me look into it further. No, it's it's a really neat article. Um, I love that they're still getting rebranded. Now all these ransomware groups are still working together. It shows yeah. the support of the the community there. All right. Um, it's all right. 
it's just frustrating now, right? Like, <laughs> I don't know. The fact that we, um, we can't get a grip of this. Uh, it's such a problem. Uh, but well, well, okay. I think it's it, just it, because we haven't gotten past. We don't train the right things in people. Like when you talk about when you first go through schooling, the first thing I learned was how to use an IOC effective, no long-term effectiveness, right? But that's the mindset that we haven't really changed from people in training. Like people need to know what it is and how to use it, but they're not thinking how to actually stop adversaries. They're thinking how to hit the easy button. So, Well, I also think that ransomware is... I think you you may have said it before, but if we can figure out how to stop ransomware, that'd be a really good start to solving the other problems. But the problem is ransomware is a multi-layered problem that if you look at what they're doing, it's they're using all those other problems that exist. Like they're probably using DLL sideloading. They're probably, or I know for a fact, they're using UAC bypass. So, right. like, if we can start tightening that stuff up, I mean, it could go both ways, right? We could try to solve ransomware as a whole, or we can try and take a look at the things that ransomware is using to be successful, look at the, what they're exploiting, look at the vulnerabilities, and say, listen, we're going to just start with one. Let's fix, and I'm going to keep beating up on it, UAC bypass. If you do that, and then the ransomware attack, you start seeing more ransomware attacks, but they're unsuccessful because they can't reach or get that privilege that they need. Then that's a good start, right? We're going to make all these ransomware groups take a step back, re figure out how they can get uh, another successful attack, which I don't know how long that's going to take, right? I would love to but say that would put them to years. a point, though. But, like, if you're able to attack their uh, revenue, less people are likely to want to partake because they're only in it for the quick buck. Absolutely. Would you want to do anything if it's like, hey, we can make a lot of money real quick? Oh, never mind. They changed the smallest thing. Right? Then then you're in it. And I would love to say it would take two years to figure things out. Um, but with um, all the great minds doing the wrong thing, um, you know, it, it probably would solve itself quickly. But then, then we could take a look and say, all right, well, we, we took care of UAC bypass. Now let's take care of how it laterally moves. Uh, what, what's a common thing that happens here? Um, or, you know, when it creates files or reaches the servers or whatever the case may be. But if we can start getting, one, and once again, start getting good at those things, then we can start stopping big problems. Because... All a big problem is is just a bunch of little problems stacked on and ordered together. So it's a great segue to the next article, um, which is a bleeping computer article. So it's not a lot of not a lot of technical things in here, um, but the reason I bring it up is kind of like along the lines of what you're talking about, right? So the article is titled "Meet Lost Trust Ransomware: A Likely Rebrand of the Meta Encryptor Gang." Um, and they basically looked at this ransomware group for the same reasons you're talking about others is it's the same tools, same modus operandum, right? Like they operate the same way. But the one thing I really did, um, like was they kept referring it to the ransomware 
itself as a ransomware operation. And I think that's one of the big defining lines when it comes to ransomware that uh, I think confuses a lot of people when you, especially when you talk to people is you say ransomware, some people think just the malware, just the thing that encrypts everything. And when you're used to threat hunting for ransomware, you're not really so focused on the ransomware itself. Like, yeah, you want to be able to quickly identify that this happened because then I have to respond to it. But you really focus on what techniques are they using to be successful. Um, and so I really like how they kind of call it out that way. And I think that's how people need to think. But not only that, we've talked about it before on this podcast numerous times where ransomware groups never die. They just either become new groups or they disperse and that talent gets added to different groups if they want to stay in that kind of operation, which a handful of them always do. Uh, which means those same fingerprints of capabilities and the way they operate become shared to the point where we should be able to detect them better. Um, so uh, that was just something they called out. So, you know, I just want to make that reference. There were some technical things that we've seen a lot of other ransomwares do, um, but you're getting closer to the execution of the actual ransomware versus their behavior. But the specific ransomware and why they're able to tie these back, they looked at the source code between the previous ransomware the the actors used uh, or group used uh, with the new ransomware variant. And the two things they call out, one is they do a massive disablement of services. You know, they shut down a bunch of services, usually around MySQL, Exchange, um, or any kind of database things, a SharePoint type stuff, anything associated with backups or web services. And that's just because if those things are running, sometimes it impedes the ability to encrypt things because the files and things are locked. Uh, but the other thing was some of the, the two optional args or arguments that can be used with the ransomware. Um, and so these things are always interesting. Arguments are always a interesting thing because it's almost like the human way to control executables. Like what can I change or do or tell it on top of just running and executing? And the two definable arguments there were the dash dash only dash path or the dash dash enable dash shares. And basically it means tell the ransomware only to encrypt a certain uh, path or directory or tell it to not only encrypt the system but encrypt any shares or target or try to encrypt any shares that's attached to it. Um, so, but yeah, the biggest thing, biggest reason I brought this up is kind of what you were, you know, going on about when it came to ransomware groups, how they operate, um, how it really is an operation. We should get better at addressing the operational side of things and not so much the, Hey, I've got a hash I can detect when this ransomware drops. Cause at that point they've been there longer than they should. So what do you got? Well, I'm going to be real with everyone. I was reading my notes from this article on the last segment. Well, you went right That's into it. That was such a good segue. Well, I, know, I was like, man, this is like, I, I don't know if like you're <laughs> trying to build this lead up for me. No, I was like, this is a perfect introduction. But I was like, man, I really, uh, you know, I hope he has more to say when we get there. Now, That's fine. <laughs> no, I got nothing. Because I already said <laughs> Perfect. I was, I was sitting there, I was like, man, I had a lot about this article. I was like, where did I get, where did I get ransomware out of this one? And then you're like, okay, moving on to the next article. I was like, that's how I got it. <laughs> but yeah, I'll, I'll say what I said earlier. Again, per now perfect. Um, uh, all right, well, that's cool. So then if, if we got that out of the way, nothing else to add. Um, we've got a, a couple. <laughs> we got a couple announcements. 
Um, the first is, uh, like we've mentioned before, SANS is doing a Fall Cyber Solutions Fest October 25th through the 27th. It's a free three-day virtual event. Uh, we will be sponsoring at Cyborg Security and attending. So, you know, check it out. SANS always has great things. Uh, usually there's always a great community around it, too, that supports it. So um, great way to network and, and everything. So I'd definitely check that out. And then the other thing I want to announce is we kind of have the, the our newest on-demand webinar episode. Um, and it's featuring Lee and his pumpkin spice logs hunting for APTs. Uh, so it's same type of technical webinar type stuff that we've done in the past, but we're making it more on demand so that you don't have to, you know, we know people miss things and this way you can get to it easier. Uh, the best way to know when these things come up and become available is check out, you know, Cyborg Security on LinkedIn. If you follow that there, you'll get a lot of the announcements for those things and many other things. So it's definitely worth, um, I guess staying up to par with that. Uh, so with that, uh, then I want to thank everyone for joining our Out of the Woods, a, a threat hunting podcast. Uh, looking forward to syncing back up next week. And with that, that closes out our top five threat hunting headlines for the week of October 2nd, 2023. Happy hunting, everyone. Yeah, happy hunting. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.